Yes, what is cracking, y'all? Welcome to The Chosen Ones. I'm your host, Joseph Richard Powell. I will be interviewing incredible human beings who are making an impact, living a life they love, and are hella good at what they do. From base camp to the peak of success, we are closing the gap between life barely lived to life on fire. Let's go. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another fantastic episode of the greatest podcast on earth, The Chosen Ones. I have a fantastic guest today by the name of David Bidler, who is the founder of Physiology First. Now, typically, I like to jump right in and explain to people why I invite my guest on the show and, and the reason behind that. But I thought to start today, the first thing I would like to do is let you introduce yourself, of course, David, if you don't mind, to our incredible audience. And also just let us know a little bit about what Physiology First is. Well, Joseph, I could not be more honored to be connecting with you. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share what we're up to at Physiology First. So on the macro level, Physiology First is a new approach to looking at mental health, a new approach to talking about mental health, a new approach to having a clearer, more up-to-date conversation on what mental health means in the 21st century. That's the big picture. On an actionable level, things that we can do right now, all of us, it's an approach to learning. What would it be like to learn about our physiology, the way that our body functions, the way that our brain functions first, and use that as a foundation for trying to understand a really complex and fast-moving world? And then at the actual structural level, it's a nonprofit organization based in Freeport, Maine, that's working to scale brain and body-based learning and 21st century skills to students, to parents, and to the larger community that's supporting these next generation of leaders who are going to be heading out into the chaos and are going to need every tool in the toolbox to really kick some butt and build an inspired version of the future that they're really psyched to live into. I love it. I saw a few of your posts on social media, which, you know, I'm always kind of hunting down for the new age thinkers and people who are here to make an impact. And I have an interesting way of how I like to go about finding my guests. And I came across a few of your posts and definitely I'm looking for people who are making a positive impact, but even more so if I run into someone who is sharing an aligned passion with myself, then I'm always super keen to jump on a call and we had a brief conversation. I just got some fire trucks going by. If you do hear that, uh, usually I don't catch them on the audio. But um, when I came across what you were doing, I feel like you and I are on very similar paths in the sense of what we're passionate about and who we're trying to help and how we're trying to make an impact. And the whole idea around the conversation of mental health itself. And we had a great chat yesterday just introducing ourselves. And, you know, we could have ripped probably for all day the way that we were going yesterday. And I thought, you know what, let's put that on hold for now. Let's have the conversation today and share it with everyone. But I just want to pick up on what we were talking about yesterday about definitely what we're doing at Physiology First and Physiology First University and this incredible movement that you're creating that helps bring awareness to ourselves as human beings and also the conversation around mental health. And for me, the one thing that really stuck out to me about you, and I mentioned this to you yesterday about why I wanted to speak to you, is you're one of the few people that I've noticed on platforms who are comfortable with having the conversation around mental health. And there's this weird thing that everyone knows that we need to be talking about mental health and having this extremely important conversation, especially today, yet as soon as someone opens their mouth to talk about it, 
they're scowled at and people are yelling at them and, you know, you need to be put in your place with who do you think you are to be having this conversation. And you brought up something very interesting about the idea of how the people who should be talking about mental health, whether they be psychologists or psychiatrists or these people with these titles, but there's something important about us as human beings having the conversation, especially from a perspective of not having a vested interest in any outcome whatsoever. And that is really just to say, first of all, that I really appreciate that you're using your voice to have such an important conversation and just really wanted to dive deeper into this conversation around mental health, whether it be specifically for youth or just us as as individuals. And I'm curious to ask you, why is this conversation so important to you? Or why is this movement and why is Physiology First, why is this whole thing so important for you to be leading? Well, you know, on the one hand, I lived through a lot of the process of looking at my own mental health examined through these archetypes that even as a young person, as a young person with no background in physiology, seemed really, really limited. They seemed limited in inquiry and in scope And some of the critical questions that you think someone would ask having any conversation about the state of the mind, that there'd be questions about the state of the body that were interjected as primary points for making a clear analysis on someone's psychological profile that were never asked. And I remember that being really odd. It seemed like missing pieces of a puzzle. And as I grew up and as I got into learning more about how to improve my own health and fitness, and that came from being really, really unfit, That came from living a life where I've been on the other side of what physiological disruption, terrible sleep, devastatingly um, destructive lifestyle when I was really young, and knowing what state of mind that produces, and then having the good fortune to meet mentors, to meet people who sort of took me under their wing, and to meet people who sort of forced me to level up. And at a critical crossroads in my life where things could have gone in either direction, to get around people who were asking better questions about what potential meant. What is human potential? What are you going to do with this life that you have? And how much are you going to invest in the health of your mind and body to reach the goals that you're saying are important to you? And I feel really lucky that I had those mentors in my life. So to know what it would have been like for me to not have had that, those people who helped to push me to learn more about my brain, body, and mind, and to understand that that was A, fortunate, B, coincidental, A lot of people just don't have that mentor. They haven't run into that intersection for learning more about their own physiology. And then to recognize that we are watching a mental health crisis. We're watching what's being called a mental health crisis. When you look at the rates of young people diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, depression, I say young people, everybody. We're watching what's being called a mental health crisis. But I think if you were to poll everyone that you could, I say every American, but as many people as you could, if you were to poll them, and say, could you just send me back your definition of the term mental health? I don't know that we would get two of the same definitions. So I don't know that we're, we're having a crisis of mental health. I think we're having a problem with accurate language. I think we may be having a crisis in classification. And until we can get out of the abstracts and out of the grays, we can't propose concrete solutions to abstract problems. We have to begin to look at things and be a little bit clearer, I think, in our language, especially when the scope of the problem will impact the entire future. Having one quarter of the kids in the United States diagnosed with some type of mental health disorder, that's not good. That's not a really good outlook for 
the people who are going to be leading our communities, building the next wave of companies, facing the next wave of chaos. That's not great, like, objectively. And so if we can, A, have a clearer, more up-to-date conversation with objectivity embedded into it, to the point that you mentioned, you know, when there is a sunk cost, you know, Maslow said, if you only have a, um, a hammer, you view every problem as a nail, right? Well, when that hammer costs $300,000, because you have a PhD in a particular area of study, you're going to apply that $300,000 hammer to everything. We now have the ability to parse data and research in psychology, in neurophysiology, in all of these aspects of looking at the human being. And we can access them and we can do that collectively together with no vested interest in a specific outcome. So the goal behind Physiology First is to A, put the information in an accessible place for young people, and B, remind them that they have the right to learn more about their brain, body, and mind, and that we can do that together with support and with, again, objectivity at the foundation. There's so many side roads there that I want to peel off onto and just dive into everything you're saying. Just connect with me on such a level. I just agree so deeply with everything you're saying. And one of the things that I've been doing as a coach on my journey is one of the things that I've learned in my life is that I don't feel there's any, and this goes to agree with what you're saying about the $300,000 hammer, is that I don't believe there's any one tool that can solve every problem or even the same problem over and over again. And from my experience, one of my goals has been to arm my toolkit with as many different tools as possible and that becoming a licensed NLP practitioner, studying CBT, becoming a certified life coach, root cause therapy, becoming a personal trainer, all of these different things. And if there's anything that I learn from learning all of these things, it's just how we have to just be so flexible with our approach with every person that I coach and every person that I work with. So I really do strongly agree with what you're saying. And also just having those tools that I have has really opened my eyes in the understanding that there are many different approaches to having a conversation with someone about mental health. And it doesn't always have to lead to one outcome. Now, I always say on here how interesting the universe works because I think I mentioned to you briefly yesterday, but I'm just in the process of I'm going to be doing some pretty intense youth volunteering here coming up in the fall, which the training is very intense. It's every Saturday. I've been doing it for the last three weeks. I have it again tomorrow. It's an all-day training, and it's all about mental health for youth. That's specifically what we're being trained about. I'm also doing some training for things like suicide prevention and how to things like called safe talk for how to have those conversations with people. So I'm really getting in deep in the world of having conversations with people who are maybe being affected by some of these things. But one of the important things that I've learned, which is very interesting that you're talking about that we can share together is they talk about the definition. I think it's just as defined in the dictionary of mental health and we're going into high schools with this program and we're explaining to them the whole point of the program is that we need to be having the conversation around mental health. And one of the parts is we define what mental health is. And I can even say based on the definition, you know, they asked all of the volunteers and the trainers, you know, what do you think mental health is? And just like you said, we all had a different answer. And even when they told us the actual definition of it, I was kind of like, well, you know, it's so hard to put something like that in a box. So I totally agree with what you're saying about mental health. And the other interesting aspect with this program is how we're talking about mental health in a positive light and not necessarily mental illness. 
And those are two very different conversations. And I always put out the disclaimer if we're talking about things like depression and especially if it comes to things like medication and, you know, I never recommend someone to or to not take medication. I understand that's not my field, but I'm also not not going to have the conversation around it because we need to be talking about these things and they're so important for us to be talking about. And I love how I'm doing this youth program training and they're sharing that same thing. So it really gives me the confidence to talk about them because like you, and I can tell from some of your posts, I talk about these things freely and you do get people reaching out to you saying, you know, why are you talking about this? Like, you know, and just the strangest feedback when the goal is to help people and have the conversation and, you know, walking that fine line, which I feel like is a tightrope sometimes, but I just, again, going back to loving the idea that you and I are both very passionate about having this conversation and how important it is. Actually, before I ask you that, I just want to touch a little bit more on physiology first, which is a question I'm curious about because with me, all of my coaching programs, everything's to me, especially coming from an NLP background is mindset focused. And there's people out there who call themselves mindset coaches. You know, I think mindset is absolutely everything. It's hard to be a mindset coach because mindset is literally everything. And especially with NLP and how to shift perspective. But when I coach people, it always comes down to mindset. But a lot of times what I do is I implement a physical practice into the start of our coaching programs, which is whether we maybe start a new routine or create some new rituals, which are walking or exercising and, and movement. So I really believe in the idea of connecting with our body to help our mind because, you know, the idea is we can't think our way out of a problem with the same tool that got us into the problem. So I'm all about helping people to shift their state and shift their perspective whether that means just simply getting up early and going for a walk and getting some fresh air to help us start thinking differently and seeing a different perspective. And I just think that part of mental health, I think physical health is such an important part of that. And you talked a little bit about that, but is that incorporated in what you do with physiology first? Is there an aspect of that where a lot of it is about movement as well and exercise, or is it mostly just about the conversation and the tools about mental fitness? No, there's so much to unpack there because where we started that train of thought, I think, was around whether we have the right to talk about this. And a thing that I love to remind our students and everyone is that we've never been in this environment before. We've never been here before. We've never been in 2021 before. The exposure to technologies that we're interfacing with, a recent global pandemic, and to understand who should be able to talk about mental health. Well, anyone with a mind should be able to talk about mental health. But to understand the physiological prerequisites for mental health, you'd probably have to understand some fundamentals of neuroscience. You'd have to understand a little bit about technology. And you'd have to be on the leading edge of what was being uncovered in these different fields. And that is something that we can empower young people to remember is that they can be, it's not even about being self-advocates. They can be the one who's waking up every day with a hunger and a curiosity to improve the health of their mind. And the reason we frame it as a positive conversation, to your point, is we've really confused these terms. People hear mental health, and I don't think that they immediately jump towards improving the health of your mind to kick some butt in the world, to reach your goals, and to achieve desired outcomes. They hear mental health, and they revert it to mental illness. We're so far away from having a proactive conversation that we, when we hear the term health and 
it means illness in our minds, that just shows us how far away we are from having a proactive conversation about upgrading the mind. And when we can let young people understand that, the notion of mental fitness, let me put this in perspective in the fitness industry. There's a reason that we don't have a wave of health clubs. I don't see a wave of health clubs. I don't see a wave of clubs where people sit in bathrobes and drink mineral water and toast one another to their good health. We have fitness clubs because looking to optimize systems is what inspires us. Maintenance is not a goal. And even if it is a stated goal of people initially, once they get into an environment in which they're feeling awesome, they're supported, and they get up this sort of hierarchy of needs to being able to ask, what do I really want in my life? What am I really going after? What do I really want to give back? What is my purpose? Before you know it, the door of the conversation around mental health, if that means improving the health of the mind, is probably the most inspired, exciting, age-old conversation for a conscious, sentient being to wonder, how would I improve my mind? And so that's why the framework, to me, it seems ludicrous that it's negative currently and societally, but we love to get young people invested in thinking about this as the most exciting conversation of their lives, the most exciting conversation of our time, and the most exciting conversation of the future, because we're building things that are going to shape the future of the world. And we're also impacted by those things. So understanding our relationship to technology and to the environment is critical in those areas. So to answer directly the last part of your question, our approach to actually working with young people is understanding a little bit of physiology and neuroscience, understanding that we all feel different after a workout for a reason. We feel different after a run. We feel different after a breathing exercise. And if we're trying to have conversations, the prerequisite is a kind of mental clarity then we're probably gonna to wanna to do something to shift physiological state first. If a student came in here and they were running five minutes late and they were clearly checking their phone and they threw their bag down and they looked up at me with beads of sweat on their forehead, I might intervene with something that looked like a little bit of a movement practice before diving into any deeper inquiry because it's gonna help them shift towards a state of mental clarity. And I would love to hear what definition you were talking about with mental health because we're still asking that question ourselves, but if I was tasked to answer it, I would probably say that it was the ability to access a state of mental clarity. You would have the a state ah. of physiological resonance to access a state of mental clarity and then analyze life because being in a state of peace is not necessarily appropriate if there are many puzzle pieces that need to be put in place to live a life of meaning and fulfillment and purpose and integration. There's not a, a desired mental state that is healthy. We're incredibly complex and we're in a fast changing environment and we have all of these multiple pieces of our lives and our environment. If I was tasked to answer the question, I'd love to hear the definition that you're sharing as well. It would probably be that you were able to access a state of physiological resonance that allowed you to access a state of mental clarity and analyze things from a clear lens and then figure out the next right move to make. And often when somebody is exhausted, malnourished, sedentary, watching the world through a four by six inch screen, accessing mental clarity is nearly impossible. And without that clarity, without that ability to access clarity, someone else deciding that they're mentally ill seems like a very, very limited scope for a really multidimensional problem. Man, I know I'm having a good conversation. I'm just trying to like sidebar so many, there's so many conversations happening in my mind about what we're talking about here and I just love it. 
the definition, I'll definitely share it with you because, and this is something that I, you know, of course we want to continue this conversation after the podcast. So I'll definitely share it with you. And it did have something to, I can't remember it word for word, but it was more into the latter of what you had mentioned about how we are able to handle challenges. That's a big part of what the definition was about like how we face adversity. I agree with everything that you said. And and same with me, you know, I think mental health could be as simple as just the healthy maintenance of taking care of our mental state. And I could just come up with a million different ideas of what I think. And that's why it's difficult to put in a box. But I'd love to share a really quick anecdote from a recent presentation with students. I say recent, but God, this whole year's moved so fast that it's actually been a year. (laughs) We asked this question often and we were presenting at a local high school and we said, you know, who here thinks that stress and anxiety are like, are big problems, either here in the school or globally, every single hand goes up. And then we were like, well, you know, how many people want to take a shot at defining either stress or anxiety. And not a single hand went up. And this kind of quiet falls over the room. And it's like, we're never going to find a definition of mental health that looks like a quantified data point. It's a larger conversation. It's almost philosophical in a way. But to understand the anxiety response of the human body would require understanding the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. And it would require understanding the optical system and the visual system. And it would force us to ask what happens when you stimulate this system with the level of stimulation that we're currently exposed to, what should it do? And if it should kind of rev up sympathetic tone and dilate pupils and increase sweat production and increase respiration rate and breathing rate, then that's not a disorder. That's a perfectly aligned physiological response. So it seems like the bigger picture questions, what is mental health or what is the desired state of the human mind? You're in the realm of philosophy to a degree, right? You can talk forever. But to ask like, what is a resonant heart rate zone to be in when you're sitting calmly at a desk? What is a respiration rate that seems to be resonant if you're sitting at a desk reading a book, and if these things are out of alignment with what is resonant, then you can give people practices that they can use to change their physiological state. That seems like something so concrete and tangible that it would be the first thing that we did, which is why we call it physiology first, and then open up the door to these higher order conversations, which kids love to engage in. Yeah, I totally agree. And also the idea of if you have this room full of students and, and, you know, just to quickly touch on what you said about everyone putting their hand up, I just gave a talk in front of a group of women and I think probably 75% of them were mothers. And a big thing that we were talking about was just, they were talking about their teenagers. And I just brought up that I felt stressed when I was in high school, but the level of stress that I see in youth and students today of what they're going through is unparalleled. Like the amount of stress that they're under for school, we've never seen anything like it. And we really do need to be having that conversation, which which is, it was just an eye-opener even for me when we were having that conversation. But going back to what you're saying, I totally agree. I think the other important thing to consider, which is fantastic because you take this into consideration, is that sometimes... While there might be some similarities in some of these things, things like anxiety, depression, and and right. how we feel stress in the body, if you have 10 people in a row and they all deal with anxiety, if you ask them what they're going through, it, it's very likely you get 10 different answers. Someone might say, it's my chest feels tight and I can't breathe. Someone else could say, you know, there's just so many different ways that it, it 
while it might be the same thing, the symptoms can be very different in how it affects us. You know, we're all unique creatures and our biology is different and these things affect us in different ways. And one of the things that you do that I think is extremely powerful is the idea of increasing our self-awareness. And I want to get into this conversation. I want to get into the hard conversation here for a little bit because you're someone who I feel like we can actually rip on this and just have a good talk about. But um, this idea of anxiety or stress or depression or, or these things, and, and I've worked in some large groups of people who deal with depression, and I've had this conversation with many people, so it's not just coming from my thoughts and my own personal experiences dealing with depression and anxiety and all these things as well. But to see how these things affect ourselves as an individual and then trying to figure out a solution of how we can kind of overcome them or work with them or live with them or, or, or whatever that might look like. And what I find it can be a problem is because these things are so unique in all of us, if I have this symptom, if anxiety looks like this for me or it's also depression or it's one of these things, when you go into somewhere for a diagnosis, for example, and this comes from studying root cause therapy and listening to therapists and psychologists who are in these groups as well and who are the ones telling me that this is kind of the approach. So again, and there's no bashing here by any means. It's just simply having the conversation. But there is a lot of times symptoms with these checkboxes. And if you're experiencing this and this and this and this and check, 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 okay, now you're being labeled with anxiety and now you're being labeled with depression and all of these things. And I know it all comes from a good place, but what's the issue when we become misdiagnosed? Because I think the issue that I think is these things are a lot harder to diagnose than we may think. And going back to the $300,000 hammer, it's so easy to try to fit people in a box, which with the goal to help them in a lot of cases, but we attach these labels to people because they experience these symptoms but there's so many moving parts to this, and the, and I think the self-awareness is so important because we know our bodies best. And to walk out of this place and say, okay, now I've been labeled with anxiety and depression and bipolar disorder and ADHD and you know this whole list of things, it can be very dangerous. And it can be one of the things about me and having the conversation is it's helpful to have a label for these things so we know what we're dealing with to help ourselves to overcome them and live with them and combat them and however we want to deal with it. But it can also disempower us where every time we now deal with something in life, you know, we kind of lean, you know, it's my anxiety, it's my depression. And we always lean on this as opposed to giving ourselves our power back and having that conversation. And what I want to get into talking to you about here, and I'm sorry, I'm giving you a million things on your side as well that you're probably trying to remember to, that you want to talk about as well. But one of the things that are very important that I'd like to talk to you about are the idea, and just more so curious on your thoughts, because we do align a lot. I'm wondering if we share differences in certain areas. And and the idea of, I want to be careful with how I say this, and I want to separate this, and whether the terminology is correct or not, I'm going to use it. But maybe let's use depression and anxiety or, or, or these a couple of these as an example, where we have the clinical, let's say clinical depression or biological depression, versus situational depression, which is we're at a point in our life where we, our relationship ended, we lost our job, we're just not enjoying our life on a level, which also will lead us to these feelings of depression. 
And same with anxiety and kind of just the difference and the dangers of maybe not even necessarily misdiagnosis, because in that case, yes, you may be showing symptoms of depression, but then if we're offering medication and something where, you know, and I said this to you briefly yesterday, but if someone just broke up with someone or they lost their job, there would actually be something wrong with you if you didn't feel depressed in the sense of looking at it as an emotion or something of this regard. So I just want to hear what your take is on these labels and diagnosis and how you feel we are doing in that world at the moment in the time and age today. I think that it may sound like an oversimplification, but it seems like a starting point and it seems like it's the place that we start is there's a powerful piece of language that people are using and you brought it up and it's the distinction between saying I feel and I think. That's a powerful starting point. The powerful starting point is what we feel is physiology, what we think is psychology. And when someone says, I feel, they're expressing what they're feeling physiologically, a bodily response. And when they say, I think, they're thinking about something. And to be able to at least separate these two things out, because right now we've mashed them in a blender societally. And when someone says, I feel like short of breath and my chest is tight, and someone says, well, what's going on at home? They're asking the wrong next question. The person's telling you what their body is doing. You're asking them an unrelated question in most instances because they're not saying to you, I'm thinking about what's going on at home. They're saying, I feel something. And if we can at least separate out feeling and thinking, then we can understand whether the box, the primary box that we can deal with in that instance is physiological or psychological. Right now, we don't have a field called stress physiologist, at least not that I know of in terms of a thing that people can access what would be a component piece to clinical psychology? Well, stress physiology. And where that lives right now is at the high end of the human performance and training world. And so I think when people ask or when people say, well, what right do you have to talk about these bodily responses? Well, we're measuring heart rate variability. We're measuring oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange. In some cases, we're measuring things like pupil dilation, skin temperature changes. We're studying the human body in this incredibly in-depth way with wearable technologies, with medical technologies. One of our partners, an incredible neuroscientist in Brooklyn by the name of Dr. Jose Herrero, he works in epileptic neurosurgery. And he's working with epileptics in a field of neurosurgery where you can actually put intracranial implants on the human brain. And you can't do that in other realms. And we can measure neuronal oscillations in relation to breathing patterns. So in that instance, you're actually looking at the human brain and the way that breathing drives brain function. Without that insight, it would be very, very difficult to have any in-depth conversation on physiological state. Now, psychology, this is why it's important to put sort of a, a line between these two things, because it, we call the organization physiology first because it's a lot easier to measure someone's heart rate than their thoughts. It's a lot easier to measure and quantify respiration rate than it is someone's perspective on their place in the world in a larger society. You know, so I think that these are some of the critical things that need to be discussed. And we now have the tools to do them more individually. We have rings and watches and things that tell us about our sleep quality and the time spent in different stages of sleep. We're able to look more into the human body than we ever have. And then if we get up the tier of being able to work with people who have even more in-depth technologies in stress physiology, you get even clearer metrics to get to the next part of what you mentioned in terms of anxiety and depression. Well, 
the physiology of anxiety, the physiology of sympathetic nervous system arousal or autonomic nervous system arousal in elevated skin temperature and all the things that I mentioned. And I'd like to circle back to a experience at Dr. Andrew Huberman's lab at Stanford a few years ago. So if I forget that, please pull me back in. But <laughs> you can measure that a lot more clearly. And that's an anxiety response than you can measure brain activity. And so if we wanted to put a line somewhere and saying, what is sympathetic nervous system response? And then what are the neurochemical compositions of somebody's brain? Now we're getting into things like dopamine receptors and serotonin levels. Talking about anxiety is a lot easier because it's a lot easier to measure the response of anxiety. When you get into what is often referred to as clinical depression and the neurophysiology there, it's very hard to measure. And that's why we're still having such a primitive conversation because I can measure, again, respiration rate and skin temperature a lot faster than I can measure serotonin levels and levels of dopamine. So when we wanted a clearer lens into what the human physiological stress and anxiety and fear response was, we asked years ago, who's doing really good work in this area? Who's looking? Who's asking? There's an elephant in the room question here. And the elephant in the room question is, what are the physiological prerequisites for mental health? What state? If I, during this podcast episode, filled up this water bottle with nothing but espresso and drank 70 ounces of espresso, I'd be in a different state by the end of the conversation, and I wouldn't have developed a mental illness in the span of time. So we're looking at the work of Dr. Andrew Huberman out of Stanford University. And he is such a tremendous resource. If anybody follows him at Huberman Lab on Instagram, you're going to get one of the highest level Instagram accounts and podcasts and YouTube channels on understanding modern neuroscience and neuroplasticity. And my partner, Lex, and I, we flew out there years ago because he was doing a, um, this incredible experiment in a virtual reality lab. And he would go into this VR lab and they would wire you up to measure the physiological response that we call stress, anxiety, and fear. And they put you in these different fear scenarios, uh, fending off attack dogs, swimming with great white sharks, solving complicated puzzles, fending off spiders, tarantulas coming out of the wall. And what you got to see on the screen while your partner was going through this experience was how the reaction of the body, the physiological response, heart rate elevation, respiration rate elevation, how it moves before that person has a conscious awareness that they're in a state of anxiety or fear. The body speaks first, it acts first. Our nervous system is this ancient survival machine. And getting to see that while your partner's on the screen and then getting to watch their body respond to this fear scenario was the most beautiful insight into what it is to be in a state of anxiety, fear, or stress. And that's, again, there's a line there in terms of what it is to be in a state of depression. Depression is this incredibly, incredibly complex topic. So when we talk about physiology first, to circle back, you know, we're trying to figure out what can be measured, what can be assessed, what's clear to see. There's so much complexity here psychology, philosophy, neurology, this is so complex. But I can tell if a young person is hyperventilating and that can give me an insight into their level of CO2 tolerance. And if I can increase their level of CO2 tolerance through breathing exercises, I'll make a tangible shift in their respiration rate and that will have an influence on their heart rate. And those two things may have an influence on their sleep quality. The goal of our organization is there, there are simple things that we can do and we keep diving into the complexity as a society. Before we you know, talk about the meaning of life, it's like, let's just get this kid in a resonant state of not exhausted, not hyperventilating. And from there, from that resonant state, they would have access to a clearer perspective 
in which they could analyze the world and say, okay, now let's talk about what's going on at home. Let's talk about my goals. Let's talk about where I feel society is going. I think we've typically done the opposite. And I think it's a powerful and critical time to do, to take this idea of physiology first and really scale that as a way of assessing mental clarity and the state of the mind. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's such a great resource for youth. And there's just like I'm doing with this volunteer program of going into high schools, people just don't, we're not really doing this. And, you know, going back to just being a youth coach and youth volunteer, we need to be supporting youth. We need to be setting them up for success and really paying attention to what they need. And I just love how that's a priority for you as well. Well, you know, Joseph, I'd, I'd love your thoughts on this next part real quick. I would just love what you sure. love to hear what you think, because I put up a post yesterday about this and I said, you know, I, I think we we're having a failure right now societally to talk about existential threat. And you'd want to do that. You'd want to say, is this an existential threat? Is this the kind of thing where if it perpetuates generationally and we see a decline in physical and mental health, that's generational, that each time that you pass on that sort of lineage, that the next generation is less prepared to support the next generation, which is less prepared to support the next. And that that would be a very, very scary spiral to fall into. So what concerns me is that I think that we're in that spiral right now. I'm surprised that more people in the community don't say, well, wait a minute, you don't have to have a particular personal attachment to the issue to see the next generation of society that their mental health is going to be important to leading the future. But we're not really having that conversation. And that I think is startling. That speaks to the problem that we seek to solve, which is, well, what? Do we expect then that these kids will be prepared to do that? To be able to assess the biggest problems globally and societally? Not if we don't support them. So, you know, again, to your point, that's why I think it's just so critical to give them the tools to rock and roll and get us back on this evolutionary track of being healthier than the previous generation, not the opposite. Yep, I agree 100%. There's a few things I've noticed when you throw things out like rock and roll. And like you said earlier about looking at mental health as how to take control of our life and live an incredible life. And I love that perspective on it. And I had a conversation about that, you know, working with other volunteers about this approach of when we're going into a high school and we're talking about mental health, it doesn't have to be like this low tone, we're going to talk about anxiety and depression. Like I use mental health in my life to help me live at my absolute fullest potential. And it can be a conversation that's very uplifting and empowering. And I just, I've noticed you say a couple of things that I think that, you know, you really do look at it the same way. And I love when we can have the conversation in that light, as opposed to talking about if it's not the most positive topic, it can be, you know, these are tools that we're sharing to help people to change their life and live a better life and live happy and fulfilled and live with greatness. And it's, you know, these are the tools that will allow people to do that. Well, Joseph, I'd love your thoughts on this piece of the puzzle. We have to ask, why are we in the situation that we're in? It'd probably be a good thing sure. to, you know, to try to figure out. And I think one of the issues that I haven't really heard people talk about is in the world of science, to be a scientist, to be a neuroscientist, you can't be overly passionate and overly excited and throw out words like inspiration and purpose. It almost discredits your place in that hierarchy of science. But yet we're a human animal who responds to emotion, passion, vision, expressivity. And I think that that may actually be the gap. And you don't want to be the most excited neuroscientist in the room because you would look like you were drinking your own Kool-Aid. So everything's very, very calm. Well, you're not going to get a group of high school students to listen to a calm presentation on neuroscience and go, whoa, I'm so fired up. So I think it really is up to us to take the science that these brilliant scientists are doing 
and to give it life and spirit because that's how we learn. Absolutely. And it's nice that we are seeing, you know, you get the odd person on Joe Rogan podcast who's kind of coming out of the laboratory to, you know, to have the conversations with everyone and put this incredible research out there. So I feel like we are trending in that direction. But I want to go back to your question that you'd asked me about this crisis that we're facing. And I absolutely agree. In fact, I just wrote a short book called The Chosen Ones. And and the premise of the book essentially, or the reason I wrote it is that I truly feel that we're facing a global epidemic of unhappiness, not just with youth, but with adults. I feel like the world is moving so quickly with technology, you know, to show this, the government can't even keep up with how to monitor and how to keep people safe from things like social media. Like we're constantly living in the wild, wild west with the world because the technology is moving so quickly. We're living in it and it's going to be 20, 30 years before, you know, we say, man, I can't believe that things were like that because it was such a new thing. And I really feel that we're just trying to keep up and as adults and not just youth, but if we're not leading by example, and if we're not living lives and taking care of ourselves, if we can't even take care of ourselves to try to take care of the next generation is very difficult. And that's why I kind of flip back and forth because I know that what you're doing is a very youth focus. I also am a youth coach, but also work with adults. But I think the conversation is really for everyone because as adults, we really need this. And everything that I do, you know, I think this global epidemic of unhappiness is we're now just living these lives that, again, the whole point of this podcast is to meet people who are living life with passion and making an impact and living a life they love because I want to promote this to youth and to other human beings that life can be incredible and life should be incredible. It's such a opportunity for you and me to be on this planet And to just fall into the system and just work nine to five and, you know, work nine to nine these days, it's absolutely ridiculous. But I just feel like we truly are facing a global epidemic in so many ways. And that's why I'm trying to pick people out like yourself who are making an impact because there's so many areas in the world that we need to be improving in. And I really do feel like I hate to say this. But I really do feel like we're failing as a human race at the moment. Sure, there's a lot of good research. There's a lot of positive things coming out. But we are failing in a lot of ways. The fact that we have, and I'm not even against rich people. I think they deserve the money they make. They've created incredible things. But when one of the top five richest people in the world could end hunger alone and still be a billionaire, and we still have this problem, and you know, I don't want to go too deep into this, but there's so many things that we are just not prioritizing. We don't take care of our teachers. We don't take care of our healthcare system. We don't take care of seniors, but everyone is keen on paying the next pro football player 10 million a year. Like we're just so backwards in so many ways that I truly do agree with you that I think we are facing an existential crisis. But One thing I would just add to that really quickly is, you know, what I think we're learning about us as a species is that we don't do incredibly well in times of abundance because we're a survival-oriented organism. And all of us Ah, who've been through struggle, if you ever ever read Sebastian Younger's Tribe, which goes into war and extreme famine and instances of survival and how much it brought people to life through the tragedy and through the violence and through the terror of these experiences, people recall it and say, well, I felt so human and connected to others because we were fighting 
for our survival. And we seem to connect well that way. And it seems to be abundance that we do very poorly with and we turn on each other. You know, that then seems to be a question of, do we need a terrible tragedy to happen? No, we probably need to elevate the conversation around purpose and mission. And to your point, when you have a generation of adults who are not having those conversations, where it almost feels naive or silly to say, what's your purpose, your passion, your mission? It seems like a woohoo language. Then you have an environment in which you then, what, expect 16-year-olds to be like, I'm fired up and going to change the world. We're a mirror for them, right? Society's the mirror that they're looking at. And when you see a culture of inspiration, passion, dedication, and commitment, that is a norm. And when you don't see it, it would be ludicrous to think that they could just conceive of it on their own. So I think it really is, to hammer on your point, it's up to us to model passion and purpose and mission, and to remember that the desired state of the mind, this is, came from a, uh, I want to say this came from a study at Harvard. If I'm wrong, we'll put it in the show notes. It came from a, an anecdote that Dr. Andrew Huberman shared. In an incredible study, when an individual was given the opportunity to stimulate any brain region, pleasure, satisfaction, satiation, the brain region that they wanted to stimulate the most was a mild frustration to solve difficult problems. It's our evolutionary origin to be mildly frustrated, to figure it out, to do it together, to build the thing. And so the idea that we should feel in a constant state of peace or relaxation is antithetical to our evolutionary origin. And if we could look at it that way and say, well, all of us, we damn near better have a difficult problem that we're working to solve because that's what purpose is. And that's the origin of purpose that can help remind young people that if they feel a little agitated to figure out a world that feels a little more optimistic and better, and they have things that they don't feel are right, that that's a normal, desired state of the human mind. The opposite would be complete boredom, nihilism, and what we sort of have now in a culture of abundance without a ton of gratitude and appreciation and connection. 100%. I agree. And I think we have our priorities wrong in a lot of cases. I think the idea of the social conditioning of we should be rich and make a lot of money and be successful and that's what's going to make you happy and that's what you should strive for. And I talk about that in, in the book, my own personal story of becoming financially successful in, in my own terms and hitting rock bottom at the same time where I said, wait a minute, I've never even cared about money or success. Why am I even chasing these things? And as soon as I shift my focus into helping others and serving others and making an impact, it created this level of happiness and fulfillment that I could never get. And that's what I really want to do with youth and with adults. I'm so lucky to have that realization. And, you know, some of the worst things, you know, that happen to us are the greatest. And a lot of it is just me wanting to share that realization with other people of what is it to you as an individual that drives you and makes you happy and makes you fulfilled. And you don't have to be a doctor. Like, what do you want to do? The whole concept of how can you live life with passion and live life on fire and bring us back to that idea to connect that. And that's really where my drive is with youth and working with adults and coaching in that world. But a part of getting to that level is also how are we dealing with the issues in our life? Because like you said, not everything's perfect. Every human being is dealing with things that we need to figure out. And I think we need to be having this conversation and we need to be putting this on the forefront to help the next generations to see what's going on. And we also need to be compassionate about, we've never experienced like this when we were young. They're going through things that are brand new to all of us. So it's not necessarily our fault that we don't know how to solve these things either. 
but we do need to be making it a priority that we're supporting youth and ending this existential crisis however we can in our own ways. Well, Joseph, I'd love to share two of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten because they're directly in line with what you're talking about. One came from a mentor, a critical mentor in my life by the name of Adam Robinson. And he said, you know, whenever you're focused on yourself, feeling um, depressed, I want to use the word depressed lightly, you know what I mean? I want to say that you're feeling a sense of self-reflection, your focus is on yourself and you're feeling down. I want to talk about it that way. We're not talking about clinical depression here. That your focus is on the wrong thing. Turn your focus towards your mission the task at hand, the thing that you're working on in your life, or turn it to others. And that was the critical advice. That's what made it the best advice, is that what you can do if you're feeling down and you can't turn your focus towards your mission, you can write a friend and let them know how much you appreciate that friendship. You can send the email that you've been meaning to send. You can call a family member and say, you know, I know I haven't called often lately. I'm thinking about you. You can send somebody a bouquet of flowers. That's reciprocal connection. And that's often what we're lacking is we forget that sometimes doing for someone is what we needed to do. And sometimes getting back on our mission is what we needed to do. But when we don't have either of those things, when we're not working towards something or giving back in some way, it seems to be where we fall into this existential sort of dead space. And then the other piece of advice is from a brilliant mentor and friend by the name of Christopher DeLafave. And we partnered with him and the Hoboken, New Jersey Public School District to share our program. But he had this brilliant line. He said, you know, wherever you find empathy you'll find innovation. And that really inspired me. Because when we walk around with our fingers pointed at the world and say, well, that sucks and that could be improved and you should, we're going to find dissonance. But when we ask, well, why are things like that? And what haven't we tried? And I can see that everybody's struggling to build a connected future. People don't want to be disconnected. People don't want the world to be in a state of bad, you know, people want the world to be good most people that I meet, and they want to be connected to other humans and they want to feel awesome and they want to do awesome things. But that's not what's happening. So to empathize with that and say, well, that current of pain and disconnection and social disconnection is real and it's powerful. Why is it like that? And let's try some new things to connect people. Innovative projects like your project pop up. And that is because empathy was the source, not criticism, not nihilism. But empathy and a desire for connection, a desire for innovation, and a belief that the world could be better tomorrow than it is today. You know, and even going back to we should be helping others and making an impact, you know, if there's people who are working and, you know, raising a family and paying their bills, you know, we are all just doing the best we can with what we got. And it's... uh even to show empathy in that, that we're all dealing with stuff, a big part of it is just agreeing so deeply with what you said about it's almost like this idea of serving others. It really is selfish in a way because it makes you feel a lot better about yourself. It's a win-win. You're helping the world. You know, if we're always thinking me, 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 my life is tough and this is hard, we're going to live in a negative state. But when, as soon as we shift that direction outwards to helping others, it just changes the game immediately. Absolutely. And if you look at why Homo sapiens is here and Neanderthals are not, look at why there were nine species of, you know, humans in 300,000 years ago and we're down to one, it's because we collaborate really well. We're cooperative. We actually, I mean, when you're outside and you watch the lengths to which people will go to help each other, that's one of the most beautiful things in the world. Somebody will rush to open a door. Somebody will drop something out of their car and they'll chase them down. We really do like to be useful and to help each other. And that seems really beautiful. And I think is the more that we remember that, that that's a beautiful capacity that we have, that it's how we got here evolutionarily and it's how we're going to stay on this evolutionary track and not fall off of it. It's because we collaborate and connect. 
100%. Totally agree. And that just, it's a great segue into me wanting to continue this conversation with you off camera about how we can continue to make this impact with working with youth. I know you're a busy guy. I want to make sure we get this in before we wrap up. I'll put it in the show notes as well, but how can people get in touch with you? How can we learn more about Physiology First? How can we help you in your movement? Give us all that good stuff. So we just built out Physiology First University, and it is, in the most simplistic level, it's a learning platform. People can go there, they can access courses, they can access an athletics department with mental and physical training programs, a resource library with podcasts, with books, with videos, and they can access an online social lounge to have conversations like this. But beyond it just being a learning platform, the goal is that people can take the curriculum and set up these pop-up campuses all over the globe, and people are doing that. So they're not just showing videos, they're bringing the information to life in their communities. We're constantly building new resources on the online platform, and we're opening our first physical location in about a week and a half. So this will be a place where local students can come, hang out, learn about the brain and the body, and 21st century skills, like understanding technology, and we can streamline the workshops here onto the platform. So the way that people can get involved is joining Physiology First University, jumping into that project with us, using it, experiencing it, seeing what it's all about, and then if they wanted to, actually running that into the community as ambassadors so that mental health education is happening in more communities in a positive, proactive, and empowering way than ever before. Physiologyfirst.org is where they can find the university. And the more members, the more power that we have to move the conversation forward. Absolutely love it, man. That'll all be in the show notes for everyone as well. This is such an incredible conversation to have. We could go on all day. I absolutely know it. I'll definitely be inviting you back on here, hopefully, as things you know continue to take off and we see this movement and, and this conversation is much needed and I'm always happy to share a platform with it. You're an incredible human being. I respect and appreciate everything you're doing for the next generation. I just want to say thank you on that note and I appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, man. Joseph, I really can't thank you enough for the platform, for an inspired conversation and for your work. You know, the more that we can put young people in touch with people like yourself and they can understand that social media can be leveraged to have innovative conversations and to build things, the more that that can inspire and empower them to do the same. So thank you so much for the opportunity to, to chat and connect and share. My pleasure, man. And on that note, thank you everybody for tuning in and we'll talk to you next week. Peace. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Chosen Ones. If you did, if you could leave me a five-star review, it would mean the world to me. I know life is busy, so I truly appreciate you taking the time. Please also feel free to subscribe and share. You can learn more about me at mastersoflifesociety.com where you can also find The Chosen Ones book and podcast as well as on my YouTube channel, Masters of Life Society, where you can find the videos of these episodes as well as my social media shorts. And you can connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at Joseph Richard Powell. Thank you so much for your support. I love y'all.